I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, hey, welcome to Page Break. I'm your host, Brian McClellan, coming to you as the leaves begin to turn here in the mountains of Utah. A quick FYI, my next appearance will be at Brandon Sanderson's Dragonsteel Con in Salt Lake City on November 14th and 15th. I'll have books and swag to sell, appear on a handful of panels, and of course, we'll sign books you bring to me. I also want to apologize for the sound quality on this one. We struggled to get Matt's mic to recognize my recording software, so his side is a bit dodgy. Hopefully it won't ruin the experience. Now, on with the show. My guest this week is video game narrative designer Mateusz Tomaskiewicz. Matt is best known for his 12 years with CD Projekt Red, where he worked as a quest designer and principal narrative designer on The Witcher 2, The Witcher 3, and Cyberpunk 2077. He has recently moved over to Riot Games, where he is the principal narrative designer for their upcoming MMO. Matt and I chat about his time with CDPR, and the challenges of leaving his friends and co-workers to move halfway around the world to work for Riot. We also discuss the complexity of designing quests and narratives for video games, coordinating with other departments and hitting deadlines, and accounting for millions of players while also telling a story. Enjoy my conversation with Mateusz Tomaskiewicz. So, so you grew up and lived most of your adult life in Poland. What what was it like switching over to the U.S. last year? Uh, it's very interesting. I mean, I've been to U.S. a number of times before, mostly on like gaming shows. So mostly the coasts. I never really explored more like uh, inland U.S. There are some like big differences, like big cultural differences. I noticed like. Uh, like Polish people are not really known for small talk and <laughs> Americans seem to love it, uh, which was a big change for both me and my husband. Like uh, we're, we're not used to everyone wanting to talk all the time, you know, when you meet people. So that was one interesting thing. Um, in general, we really like it here. It's, uh, it's really nice. The weather is obviously amazing. It's uh, South California. So, you know, um, it's great. Uh, compared to Poland in winter, for example. Oh, my God. <laughs> what else can I say? Other than that, well, there's everything we need here. You know, we have the mountains. We have the ocean side. It's great. We love it. It, it is very pretty. I, uh, but I, I do love Poland. I, I've gotten to go a couple of times. Um, mm. Oh, you did. It's my, uh, it's it's the foreign language for me as an author who's, that sells the best. Yeah, yeah. The uh, the language is pretty difficult, I would say. Uh, I have a few American friends who live there, uh, and they are trying to learn, but it's it's tough. I whenever I go, I try to learn a couple of words, and I I can't get them down at all. I'm so bad with language. Yeah, 
I, I th- no, I think it's especially for like if you're a native speaker in English. I think this is especially difficult because there are specific sounds in Polish that sound all the same for English speakers. Like um, there is, there are a few different letters that are like sh, chi, and like ch, and they are different. Like uh, you know sounds but for like for my american friends they all sound the same right and sometimes it can change the whole meaning of the word when you when you were working uh at uh cd project red were you working in both english and polish yes um so originally when i joined cdpr back in uh 2008 um it was mostly a polish team um not that many people who spoke other languages so the whole team was working naturally in polish um but then after we released witcher 2 we started hiring more and more international uh people uh and then we had to switch uh like the day-to-day uh language because um you know people felt felt excluded when you spoke in in polish in front of them uh like something was like um there were like tensions and some things were just not working so we had to switch and uh, start uh, communicating in english uh, most of the time however when we were on a meeting with like only polish people because this happens sometimes um obviously it was easier to just you know use your native language and just uh, go ahead with that um and i know you know because we we, we hired from all over um so we had like a, a we had like a group of germans who sometimes would speak german in the kitchen or like people who spoke spanish and, and so on and so forth it was really interesting did, did you um did you find that kind of transition to working in english to be difficult um, at first, yeah, like um, most people in Poland uh, learn uh, English at school, um, and I was no different, of course. I, I did learn it, um, and I actually was, I, I think I was pretty good at it, but, you know, like written English and like school English versus actual conversations in English day to day, and having to explain like difficult design concepts in in, uh, in English, it was kind of challenging at first, but I think it was great actually because uh, it allowed I think all of us to level up our uh, you know language skills and uh, and in general you know like it, it did make the the company uh, feel much more inclusive and um, uh, you know and and generally open uh, to differences uh, because. Let's face it, English is the international language, like everybody speaks it. So, you know. Well, and, and I was told when I was in, uh, when I was in Roslov, I was told that, mm. uh, that pretty much everyone under 30 speaks English pretty well. Yeah. It, yeah. Is that the case? It is. But, like, you know, like, like I said, I mean, I thought I knew English pretty well. And the first time I went to Australia, uh, to Sydney for like a, like a business trip and i had to go to the store and order things and name foods i was petrified and it's it might be because i'm an introvert but also like i you know i just didn't have to do this kind of stuff in english before and it was scary um so i think a lot of people in poland do have like uh like a knowledge of english and like they can speak it to a degree but i think People that don't work in companies that uh, have to cooperate with people from other countries, uh, that they have like um, high proficiency in it, if, if, if you know what I mean. Um, 
And yeah, of course, like people who are uh, a bit older from like, like the previous generations, they mostly were learning Russian because obviously Poland was in the Eastern Bloc and Russian was the language to, to learn, right? So like my mom, she doesn't speak English. She only speaks Russian and Polish um, because it was uh, so normal back then uh, in the communist era. Now, tell me, tell me a little bit about what it means to be a quest designer for gaming mm-hmm. because you know i understand narrative i understand writing you know i write epic fantasy novels for a living of course yeah um but like i'm really fascinated by the way a video game mm. it's very different because you have to tell stories but you also have to be working with the the developers and working with yes. you know the design of how like the all the mechanics work and the levels work all that stuff mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. How, how do you go about that? Yeah, so um, it of course depends on the project um, because, um, you know, there's extremely, uh, well, there's a lot of variety in, in video games. Like you will get video games that will have a very little narrative. You'll have video games that are almost purely narrative with some slight gameplay elements. Um, but working on uh, RPGs, which was my, you know, primary experience as a quest designer, um, it was basically about it, it. It's like being a jack of all trades to a degree because you have to have a good uh, narrative feeling, like what works and what doesn't, like in order to tell good stories, right? But then you also need to understand the technical side of things because you actually need to build it in engine, in game engine. It needs to work. It needs to cover for all the things that players might think of doing. So uh, it's it's like this combination of narrative and technical skills and at the same time it's also like at least in cdpr that was the case where um you not only have to care about the narrative and like is it working but also like about requesting assets from all other departments like what kind of character models will work for this or um what kind of music would fit the best uh this this sequence so it actually conveys the emotion you want to convey right so my my brother actually compared it to being a movie director uh because you know it also combines all these different uh things just on a smaller scale, because if you're a quest designer, you're um, most likely responsible for a few pieces of the narrative. You're not responsible for the entire thing, unless, unless of course, it's a smaller project where, you know, like you're the only quest designer, then yes. Uh, but most of the time, the way we did it was um, we had like a the write-up of the full thing, and each quest designer would get a piece of that, or a f- few pieces of that, uh, and they would be responsible for these pieces. And then um, a lead of that team, which, which was uh, um, for Witcher 2, it was my brother, for Witcher 3 and Cyberpunk, um, I, I was in that role. And um, basically that, that role is about uh, seeing the bigger picture, like the team, all the team members have all these pieces and you need to make sure with the writers that it actually makes sense as a whole plot arc, right? Because you can do the best quality possible pieces, right? But if it doesn't come together, it doesn't come together. It's just a mess. So yeah, it's a, sorry for a long-winded answer, but. I No, I love that. That's fascinating. Um, I, I'm, I'm really interested in the way that that stuff like a video game and writing for a video game, it really, mm-hmm. really becomes more about 
it, it, it comes about the the balance of being a project manager yeah. versus also being a writer and a creative person. It, Absolutely. Did you ever struggle with that kind of thing? Of course. I mean, um, there are certain things you want to do creatively and you know they would be better for the project. But at the same time, you have to face the realities of production. Like, I, But I guess you, you get the same in the movies, right? Like you sometimes see like, you know, we, we don't have enough budget for this CG. Maybe we should do it like... I, I, I read recently uh, this article about She-Hulk um, and apparently the writers had a few talks with the, the production about, um, you know, like could you write in less scenes with She-Hulk being She-Hulk because the CG is so expensive, right? Um, it's also the case in the video games, and uh, the thing with video games is um, it's this, but multiplied uh, by all the different departments we have. We have uh, we had to care about the character models, the environments. Uh, we had to care about the time needed to record all the dialogues, and you know, and all of this like com- comes together. And then you have to face that reality. And um, of course, we know you know we could make this content better like you could spend infinite amount of time on the game content and add like variations to what the players are doing maybe the characters react to everything you do but like in case of a game with full vo like the witcher you know every line counts right because uh uh it, it amounted to a huge amount of uh, like number of lines and each of them you have to record and in our case i think it was uh it was way over 10 languages. I think maybe like 12, 13. I don't remember exactly. But, you know, it it, it, it causes basically each line of dialogue cost more. So it also kind of forces you to be more concise. We had these passes with the writers of, you know, making the, right, the, the dialogue more concise so we could cut down from the lines where maybe they are not as needed and maybe we can keep them in places where if you if you do cut there, like it would really impact the um, the quality and you know um, and the, you know the the emotional impact of these scenes were, would be not as big as uh, as we need it to be, right? So yes, absolutely, it is a lot of that, um, and it is a bit of a struggle, um, but it is also kind of interesting at times because it forces you to create more efficient solutions and more, you know like think creatively about how you you solve problems um and yeah i think it's not it's not gonna go away i mean there are you know there are some ideas on the market on how to make certain aspects of video game making cheaper uh but they are also very controversial like you know there are these ai generators for sound uh, for voices for example right and some of them imitate uh actors pretty well uh, and it is scary, actually, because, you know, uh, it, it could put people out of jobs. And, you know, working with actors is also a great part of this uh, this job. Like, I, I was present on the multiple recordings, and it was always a joy to hear them speak out the lines and, you know, see them get into the character. So, um, yeah, I don't know if I want to reduce the costs this way, but... <laughs> Right. Well, and that's kind of the the balance that you're going to have to face going forward with any video game, especially nowadays, because there's yeah. there's now like this kind of huge resurgent indie market going on with, you know, Steam and all of that stuff. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, you've got the AAA games that are, are you know, you've got to got that war between, um, you know, the monetization of, yeah. you know, all of the like trying to get the pennies out of everybody. Right. Mm, yeah. Versus 
you know, oh, do you just create a one big game and put it out there? Um, yeah, that's true. I mean, for me, for 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 someone like me, for like a for a creator, it is much preferable to not to think about monetization. I mean, I I would love nothing more just to think about like I want to create something really good and put it out there and sell it once and that's it, right? Yeah. The, the, ideally, this is what 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 would work best for me. Um, but of course, like again, the, like you said, the reality of it is like it is a business, right? Like video games, uh, you know, need to make money as well. Um, so it is an important consideration. And um, one thing I think is important about it is like when you do think about monetization, is to think about it as to make it as least like basically think about the the players, like what will be a good solution for them and what will not be annoying to them you know, um, and make it as fair as possible. Uh, I think this is the way I thought about it in the past when I was involved in any of these conversations. Um, Like in CDPR, like one of the big uh, uh, goals for us was like to be fair to the players. And when we release content to make it uh, significant and uh, like um, to make it justify the price, basically. Um, And it was always like a policy for us. Um, so yeah, this is definitely like one of the values I, I have, I hold deep, uh, close to my heart. Um, and yeah, I mean, I personally, as a player, not as a developer, but as a player, I also prefer models where I can buy something own it and, you know, like pay for like a significant chunk of content, uh, and enjoy it. Right. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, and that, you know, that, that kind of, that ties nicely into Riot because, you know, like I, cause I got into uh, League of Legends when, when it was first in the beta mm-hmm, mm-hmm. long, long time ago. And I remember really appreciating when they started monetizing it, how, uh, how the monetization was all, it was all optional. Mm-hmm. You know, if I wanted to spend a couple of dollars on a skin that I, for a character I loved, yeah, I could. But I didn't have to, yeah, and it didn't change the gameplay, yeah. And I, I really appreciate it when, when it's cosmetic mm-hmm. and not gameplay. I agree, absolutely. I absolutely, absolutely agree with this. Um, I did play a, a bit of League, um, and I also noticed that about it. And to be honest, for the most part, I didn't really spend money in it. Um, and you know, the game was still enjoyable, and I didn't really have to. Um, so yeah, I, I, I totally agree with you. Um, and from my observations so far, it seems like Riot is also, um, keeping players first, basically, you know, and, and, uh, and they're trying to make the best they can about, uh, making it fair. So I really like it about the company as well. Um, I'm not, I'm not long, uh, in Riot yet, (laughs) but so far I really like it. Yeah, you only arrived uh, in January, right? So about eight or nine months ago. Yeah, yeah, that is correct. Yeah, yeah. So how is that transition for you? Do you like because you spent most of your career at one company for twelve over twelve years, right? Mm. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Like CDPR was my the first company I started working for, and I stayed there for like you said over twelve years. it is a huge change, but honestly, this was one of the big reasons why I I changed jobs because I felt like if I won't try it now, like I will get my roots so deep that I will never try it. I also really wanted to try to try living abroad. Um, 
it is a big change, you know, like it's like you're maybe not abandoning because I still talk to people from CDPR. I have a lot of friends there, but um, you're kind of like, you know, leaving behind the network you had built, like a safety net and uh, an environment where you knew how to function. Um, it was very natural. Uh, you felt that like it's like your second home, right? And you go into like a completely new organization, new team, and uh, you have to build all of that from the scratch, right? Um, so it, it is it is a scary experience, but I think it's also a very valuable experience. And I think I would recommend it to everyone uh, are wondering if they should make like big changes at some point in their life. Yeah, and that's I'm I'm glad that you're able to kind of look at it with that kind of um, with that optimism because it's because it's scary, you know, like I, because I've changed publishers not that long ago mm. and that's not even nearly as big of a deal. Cause I, I talk to my publisher a few times a year and, yeah. and it's, and, and changing publishers is scary because you've got a whole new business model behind your books and all that, mm-hmm. but man, changing an entire company. Cause, cause when you come to like gaming companies, it's, it's not just like the company that you work for nine to five. You also play games with those people. And of course, like there's, there's see them after work. Yeah. 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 Right. There's like a creative and friendly intimacy that isn't there in kind of a normal nine to five job. Yeah. Yeah, of course. And uh, yeah, that was, I think the most difficult part of this whole transition. Um, I still play video games with them like i said like we played uh warhammer with my uh quest designer friends from cdpr all over the weekend uh warhammer total war um and uh yeah that was the most difficult part honestly um but i think it was important for me to do this because i felt like um you know i i I never knew how does it look like in other companies and, you know, like, uh, is our company good compared to other companies? Like, are there things we could improve, like, uh, based on, you know, what they do? Um, I think it's just, it just helped me grow a lot, uh, already. I mean, even though I'm not long in, in Riot, I already see a lot of things that Riot does differently, uh, and a lot of really cool solutions that I feel, uh, you know, uh, work very well, basically, um, and yeah, it's it's just a huge growing experience, honestly. And this is exactly what I wanted. I mean, it's easy for me to say because I was uh, kind of doing it out of a safe position where I am like financially stable. Um, you know, I have a stable life, so doing this change was coming from a place of security. So for a lot of people who you know have less stable situation, it might not be as easy. But yeah, like like this this social part of it, like uh, and you know like this combined, like it probably if it was another company in Warsaw, it would be much easier because I would have easier access to all the people I know. So this combined with moving overseas, especially so far, because it's like an eleven hour flight, nine hour difference uh, with my friends from Poland, that was a huge shift. Yeah. And I bet that that's, that's got to be a little bit frustrating because when you want a game with them, it's a totally different time of day. Yes. Like, yeah. not even close. Yeah. We can only do weekends, really, because during the weekdays, uh, when they leave work, I'm starting work because it's it's like nine or something. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, it's not really doable during the weekdays. But uh, on the weekends, it's actually not that bad. Like, um, it's their evening, so... 
actually they're done with most of their day-to-day stuff. Um, so we can sit, I can, you know, I, I just make myself coffee and we can start playing for a few hours. It's not that bad, but uh, definitely was easier when I was still in the same time zone. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I imagine. Hey, Page Break listeners, Brian here, rudely interrupting myself for a bit of a plug. Making a podcast isn't free, and I'm hoping that you enjoy it enough to pitch in a pittance. To do so, head on over to patreon.com pagebreak, where you can toss as little as $3 a month into the tip jar, $5 a month to get the podcast ad-free and early, and $10 a month to hear your name in the credits and feel a smug sense of superiority. You can also buy my books from your favorite retailer or direct from my website. Thanks to everyone who contributes. Now back to me. So when you came to Riot, what is it like, not just coming into a new, not just coming into a new company, but coming into some, to a pre-existing world? Because mm-hmm. you're, you're working on the MMO and I understand you can't talk a ton about that, mm-hmm. but I'm very curious about kind of how that is more to you as a creator coming into somebody else's world that is very deep, you know, and they've got like, they've got the new anime that's won a ton of awards. They've got, mm-hmm. uh, they've got years and years of backstory for characters and all that stuff. Yeah. Do you like coming into a pre-existing world or is it a little bit jarring? Uh, I do like it, honestly. I mean, when you think about it, um, it's not the same as the experience I had previously, but um, when I started working in CDPR, there was already as well like a lot of pre-existing elements of the world because it was based on fantasy novels, right, by Andrzej Sapkowski. So um, it was already existing world, and we were building on top of that foundation, right? Um, and it kind of feels in a similar way in, in Riot because, like you said, there is so much stuff that was produced before I joined. So definitely, like uh, it is, it is a bit of work to catch up to on all of these things. Especially, I did love Arcane when I watched it, um, and when I got into the setting, I, I I see a lot of really cool things in it that we can build on. So yeah, in this regard, it's uh, actually not that dif- different from what I was doing before. One difference is, of course, like uh, when I joined CTPR, I was already a big fan of Sapkowski's works. I've read all the books. I knew all about it, right? So um, here it's a bit different because I had to uh, digest all that source material. Um, I did have some experience with uh, work on things from scratch on settings. Um, actually, um, today, uh, a project I worked on before I came to Riot, I had this like period of doing different things between CDPR and Riot. Um, uh, today, that project hit Kickstarter. It's a, uh, a story-based board game, uh, kind of like Descent. Um, and uh, me and my friend, who also used to work in CDPR, we built a uh, setting. Uh, we did a lot of world building for that. So that was actually much more, much different experience because it was working on a setting from the scratch. And uh, I would say that was way different than uh, compared to CDPR than what I have now compared to CDPR. It, it different how? Well, when you work on a setting from the scratch, you have to think about things like the basic rules of the world, uh, you know, like its cosmology, like uh, like geopolitics of it. What actually makes it different from other settings? Like what are the, you know, selling points of it, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. 
um, when you work with a pre-existing setting, a lot of the, these things are probably already established. So, you know, it's a matter of learning them and not really designing them from the scratch. So I would say in many ways, like designing a setting from the scratch, it is liberating because you can do whatever you want, right? But at the same time, it is more difficult because you have all these considerations uh, that you have to think of, right? Yeah, like in case of Kinfire, that's the name of the project, um, it was... The the uh, the goal was to build like a fantasy setting that has like strikingly different visuals and like elements that differentiate it, and it had to work for a specific rule set for the board game. So there were certain things that needed to happen, like uh, you needed to come back to the town often, for example, right? So we had to think, for example, what makes this specific town special, right? Like why you're coming back to this specific town. So we started building on it from there on. Um, yeah, like with pre-existing settings, I think it's more of the case of like, what what do we want our game to be and how do we make it work within that setting and not uh, actually um, conflict with what is already there, right? How do you make the elements of that setting work for you and not against you kind of thing? So it is more limiting in this regard because there are like layers of already existing things. Like for example, for The Witcher, if we wanted to do an RPG where you can do like literally whatever you want, like you can be evil, that actually really doesn't work well with the main character of Geralt because he was a already established character who would never do these things. Um, so back then we had to think, how do we present choices to the players in a way that they still feel agency, so they have control over the character, but at the same time, we don't break Geralt's character. We stay true to Geralt's character, right? And it was an interesting exercise, I must say. I think in a lot of ways, it allowed us to create more sophisticated choices and stories because we were kind of forced not to rely on like l lazy design choices, so to speak. Like we couldn't just say, oh, you, you know, you can rescue the orphans or like burn the orphanage or whatever, uh, because, you know, Geralt would not do this stuff. So we would have to think, okay, how do we add nuance to this orphanage quest in a way that you have a choices that are impactful and you still have like some kind of dilemma, right? So yeah, that was very actually interesting and, and stimulating in a way. That That is really cool. I, I, um, I've I've kind of talking to other creative professionals. I've noticed that it does seem like when when you get writers and people that that do this kind of thing for a living, that when you give them a little bit of a framework, yeah. whether it's a pre-existing world or um, or whatever you're trying to work on, the framework often kind of helps keep a writer focused. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Because, you know, and I speak from experience as somebody who does design worlds mm -hmm. from scratch, it's so easy to get distracted. It's so easy to go in any direction whatsoever. Yep. And yeah, absolutely. We, we had the same thing with Kinfire, honestly, at the beginning. Like, you have so many options on the table. Like, you don't even know where to put your hands in, right? And uh, it's almost like, I would say it's like, it's just being overwhelmed with the amount of choice because, which is funny because the same thing happens when you give players too many choices in the game like sometimes they will just have like a decision paralysis right yeah. uh it's actually it's you know much easier to work sometimes within certain boundaries and if you have too many options it's just you know you don't even know where to start uh i think what helped us in this specific case was to build a process for ourselves 
where we would say, okay, no, we'll pitch the ideas first. We'll we'll uh, brainstorm with the team. Let's see which ones resonate the best, and we'll just go in, onto adding more layers of detail and coming back, doing this loop, this feedback loop, right? So it wouldn't be the case where we say, okay, give us half a year, we'll come back with the ready setting, right? No, we we prefer to work the way we worked in the previous company we worked at. Uh, so with like a very specific process with steps and checkpoints and all that. So adding structure to this workflow actually helped us a lot to actually get it done. Do you find yourself working, um, do you find yourself working kind of normal business hours or are you one of those people that spends a lot of time at night and on weekends and things <laughs> like that in your creative worlds? Uh, depends. Like, uh, okay, so depends on uh, when I worked on video games, it, it, it was... Um, it was usually normal uh, hours during the week. Uh, however, sometimes when I was designing things, so like doing paper design, not actually implementing an engine, I would uh, sometimes just sit down and do it on the weekend because I had a creative spark, right? And sometimes it could be a week of just staring at a Word document and not being able to write a sentence, you know? Or like writing the beginning and just deleting it because it sucks, right? <laughs> <laughs> for the setting building for Kinfire, uh, it was... It was actually much closer to that second approach. So we would write when we felt inspiration to write. Uh, normal work, like normal business hours, didn't really work well. It's difficult to force yourself sometimes uh, to like you know come up with ideas. Yeah. And also, like my friend, he was already he already moved to Canada at that point, so we had this uh, big time difference. So it wouldn't be even possible. So uh, we, we set up meetings for ourselves, like checkpoint meetings. Like, okay, what did you produce? What did I produce? Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. But we didn't like set like very hard hours on, on working on these things. Um, it's also the case like when I have something very very specific to make, um, it's actually fine to do it during like a very structured week, because yeah, it's like a rhythm, you know. Like you you like when you, now I work on home office, so I get up, I make myself a coffee, I log in, I download the the, the newest like version of of like editor and everything. Uh, I. I you know, I have a checklist of things I want to do this day. I do them and then I sign off and it's like very clean and organized. But with writing stuff, it is often the case that, yeah, I have a creative block and I can go on for a week without doing anything on it. And then I have like two hours where I'm like, bam, 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 it's done. Right. Yeah. Uh, that's, I mean, that's definitely how it is with, uh, at least with my novel writing. I mean, every novelist is a little different, but, mm. but for me, for me, it's definitely very much a, um, you know, like I, I kind of have to be in the groove for it to work. Yeah. And I can, I can do my business things in the morning. I can answer mm -hmm. emails and all the, you know, random yeah. stuff. Yeah. But when it comes to the actual writing, you know, sometimes it's going to take a couple of drinks and, you know, yes. 12 at night yeah, yeah. <laughs> before, it, before anything happens. Inspiration strikes in weirdest places. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, like some, I, I noticed like sometimes it's like subconsciously procrastinate. Like I do anything I can to find other things to do and not touch this thing, you know, because I'm like, no, I, it's not now. It's just, <laughs> I, 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 I prefer to clean the whole house than sometimes touch this stuff. But then, yeah, some, I don't know what it is. It's sometimes it can be like something I noticed and it just like clicks and I get in this zone. And, and then, yeah, my husband will yell at me like, you, you should log off and because it's like, I don't know, 10 p.m. And I'm like, no, no, no. I'm, 
I'm in the zone. Just don't talk to me right now. I need to finish this thing. <laughs> you know, my my wife will come down around around that time, around nine thirty, ten o'clock in the evening, and she'll come down and she'll be like, "Are you ready to watch a show?" But like, if she walks into my office and my keyboard is clacking, yeah, she'll just I'll just hear a really loud sigh from the hallway, like. Oh. <laughs> she knows she knows what's going on <laughs> she's been there before yeah yeah she knows that i'm that i'm in something and then i'll i'll either say okay come back in a few minutes yeah or i'll say okay i'm just about done you know yeah like i, I don't know how it feels to you but to me it like it feels like this rush of energy and like my head is buzzing and now i like i yeah i finally know what i need to do it's like this uh moment of like absolute clarity yeah you know uh and i love it i love it when it happens i hate the struggle when you're like struggling to type in anything you know yeah i did like when i was like under like tight schedules sometimes i did this thing a bit different process where um i forced myself to write something that sucks first and i was like look i know this sucks this is probably the shittiest quest i wrote it doesn't matter i just need to build something that logically works so i can actually build on top of this and a lot of times that actually worked out quite well, like into quite nice quests we built in the past. Um, so the first draft, I knew it would, was not good, but it was functional and it sold the idea I wanted to sell. And then I would just iterate on it. And actually that sometimes sparked uh, this creative spark as well, um, because I would look at the existing text and I would be like, oh, actually this scene could be built in a different way, or maybe combined with this, we could remove that. And now it actually works pretty nicely. Actually, this is kind of cool, you know? Or, I mean, because video games are like very, uh, working in video games is very like collab collaborative process. You don't need to always depend on just yourself to squeeze this thing out of yourself. You can show this like ugly draft to someone. Like I had a few really good writers uh, back in CDPR that I, I worked with, but you know, some of them are still my friends now. Um, and I love just saying, look, I know this isn't, isn't great, but this is more or less what we need to build. Could you take a look and could we discuss, you know, and they looked and sometimes it inspires them like, oh, this scene could actually be about this and that. And then, you know, like we add some deeper layers to it and th then it's actually pretty cool. Uh, honestly, like some of the best quests we made for The Witcher 3 were built that way, like with just vast amount of iterations and layers of feedback. And sometimes it can be like a very exhausting process because it feels like you're trying to squeeze out water out of a stone, right? Like it's there's not much there, but you're squeezing, right? Until that actually pours out of it. Um, but yeah, honestly, sometimes sometimes this is the only way to go. Like um, we would get these quests uh, on The Witcher where we would redesign them a few times and we played in the game and we we're like you know, yeah, this really doesn't work. Like it's still, yeah, the thematic is off, you know, like we don't really know how to build it or like any ideas we had where they were like not reasonable, they're not doable really. With some of them we really struggled where we, I remember like late meetings, like emergency meeting, we need to redesign this now because it's later, we will not be able to use assets for it. And it, it's not a good quest. And I guess we could ship with it, but you know, we, nobody would be happy with the, with this if we shipped with this. So they were like meetings where we put a number of people in the room and everyone worked really hard trying to like brainstorm like a way out of this, you know? And sometimes it was like everyone was super tired and, and, and anyone would be like, 
we want a semi-working idea and we, we all just want to go home like anything give us anything that just you know would allow us to like move a step forward but then the other day you know like sometimes slept on it and this is how we call it, we, we call it like we need to go home and sleep on it right because sometimes like just getting out of that room getting fresh air and like going to sleep and you know like coming back with fresh head would already unlock some ideas for people and i think we managed to fix all the the quests that were like that you know and sometimes it's just craftsmanship right it's it's sometimes it will not be we know it will not be a revolutionary thing but it does its job it does it well it's enjoyable you know and it's good enough to keep in the game and it's not actually um it's a, it's a, because again it's a combination of a lot of things right if you have a certain amount of things on specific quality level if some others are like especially like some side quests or like some side activities if they're a little bit lower quality sometimes it's okay you know not everything has to be uh, the bloody baron uh, storyline yeah for sure i mean and and i think that's that's kind of how it is with books as well you know you because you there are times when like because every chapter every every quest is gonna be is going to be a little different it's going to resonate with different people differently Mm -hmm. um and and there are times especially i imagine with something like a video game where you know you're you're trying to create a very rich depth of content and and every single piece of that content can't all be perfect exactly it's impossible you know you've got a ship you know you've got to you've got to get the product out there hit deadline i mean you know it may be if you sp- maybe if you spend like countless years for it um maybe that would be possible but yes it is we were talking about like production constraints before they are there and they are not going away and the longer you wait the worse it gets you know um the closer you are to release the less things you can actually do like even like you're close to release of the game and you know producing this specific piece of content like a model or like animation or whatever and putting it in would make it so much better but you you simply cannot allow it because putting that thing in could destabilize the whole build and now you're spending more time on debugging it and you're releasing a game with more problems right so at some point there is like a cutoff point where um it, it has different names in different companies like some people call it hardening because um you no longer like open the stitches and like replace things. You just want to polish the thing. You want to remove as many bugs as you can and have the best quality of the product you can when you release the game, right? Yeah, you're ju- you're, you're simply not able to just move that further. And uh, yeah, that's the reality of it. I mean, I remember on one GDC I went to when me and my writer friend we had a, like a presentation on choice and consequence, and someone from the audience asked us. Because we were talking about production limitations, but very vaguely, right? And someone asked us, well, why can't you account for every possible choice players might make in the game? And to me, we tried to explain it, but it's really difficult to explain to someone who didn't work in that framework. Because, yeah, like if you never worked in a video game company, it might be difficult to explain all these like production limitations why adding each next choice will actually generate more costs and it might push your deadlines and it will generate more bugs and you know more voiceovers like all of that stuff combined um i do believe like if you were like treating it like clear like just as in like ideological experiment and spent like 
your lifetime on it. You could maybe build it, but you have to also live, right, of something. And, you know, unfortunately, we're not, you know, like we cannot always do what we want. I cannot just spend my whole life building one game uh, and like build like a perfect game. The only thing I can do is try to get as close to it as I can within the uh, boundaries that I'm given. And that's the, that's something that I find myself becoming much more sympathetic for when I get, as I get older is, is with these, especially big things, because, because I, you know, I've built a career off of kind of knowing how my little corner of creativity works. Mm-hmm. And, and, and it's mostly about me, just me. Yeah. You know, my publisher has some stuff. There's obviously there's cover art and there's an audiobook reader but it's mostly me mm-hmm. and that's already complicated enough. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so I become much more sympathetic towards when you have a gaming studio, when you have a, uh, when you have a movie studio mm-hmm. and you're trying to create something that requires the creative input of, yeah. of maybe five people or 10 people or 500 people, Yep. it becomes so much more expensive and it becomes so much harder to craft. Absolutely. And I don't, I don't think normal consumers really understand how a, a truly good video game, how special that actually is. I agree. I agree. I think in general, but you know, it, it is a little bit of our fault because um, as developers, we don't really talk about this stuff openly a lot. It's not really, you know, circulating the the discourse uh, discourse that much i mean if someone really wants to learn these things of course they can like buy a gdc pass and you know like log in and watch all the presentations but there is a lot of arcane knowledge in the industry that we're not really talking about a lot so it's no surprise that a lot of people don't know this stuff right i bet most people don't even understand like your process, like who is the editor, right? Like what are they doing? Uh, because they would just assume, well, you sit down and then you write the book and then if publisher likes it, they publish it, right? Simple. Um, <laughs> they don't see all the steps that lead to it. Um, so yeah, I mean, it, it, it is absolutely true, I think. And I, I heard similar sentiments from other writers that were joining our team before uh, that didn't work with uh, video games as a, um, a media um, before. Uh, so either people who published books or were mostly coming from that um, area, right? Um, but even people that worked on like scripts for like TV shows and so on, it, it is still vastly different experience for them. Um, because, you know, like aside for having a bit more complexity than movies, uh, video games also have things like um, in the narrative specifically, like accounting for player actions and choice, right? So yeah, especially in games like like RPGs, like it is a very different way to write things because instead of like a linear script, right, which you could put like on few pages, you get like a graph. It's more like a graph, really, when you think about it, right? It's like this web that you're building. Like, did they go this route or this route? Um, some people compare it to uh, these uh, choose-your-own-adventure books that uh, used to be popular back in the day. Yes, I was just thinking about that. Yeah, yeah. Like, it's a common comparison, and I think it's quite accurate. Like, you have to think about the ways the players go, and you know, at the same time, 
you don't want to build dead ends, probably. You don't want to build dead ends in your story where players will never reach the conclusion of the story. Like, what did the characters learn? Like, what was their journey? And so on. Well, you will never learn because you made bad choices. Restart. That's usually not the way you structure video games. Usually uh, the, the way you structure big games like those is uh, like you have a core of the game, which most people will probably go through unless their character dies and they restart. But that's a different matter, right? But your, your, your story choices usually don't lead you into a dead end where the rest of the story is cut off. It's, it's, of course, it's doable. It's just not something that most games do. So yeah, in reality, you get this core and the player, uh, player character goes on a journey and they reach some conclusions, right? So more classic approach to storytelling, but accounting on for choices along the way and probably different endings. It really depends on the game, right? Well, and, and that's something that fascinates me about those kind of um, the kind of cho- choice based RPGs is that you have to account for branch- branching narratives. Yeah. You know, when I'm writing a book, I, I'm writing a single story all the way through. You know, there's maybe multiple points of view and different perspectives and things, but it's a single narrative. Mm-hmm. But when you're writing something that that lets the 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 reader, the player choose, yeah. it's it creates it creates so much more complexity. Even even just a handful of choices yeah. create great complexity and 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 i don't think again this is one of those things that i don't think that the actual end user actually understands probably not how how complex it is kind of under the hood oh absolutely like uh like one one of the big parts of my job as a uh, quest director and earlier quest uh, lead uh was doing exactly this so keeping track of all of these like branches that are you know going in different directions and make sure that they don't break the game or make sure they're all accounted for, right? So I would play continuously through all the quests that all the people, all the designers were building and all the dialogues that all the writers were writing. Of course, the lead writer would also go through these, but he would be more focused on like uh, the quality of the writing. Does the story tell the things they want to say and so on? And I was looking more at the, I mean, I was looking at these things as well, but I was focused on the logic of it. And like, I would bring feedback to them like, look, um, in this dialogue, actually, this situation will not work like this if the player played like that. So we need to either create like a second version of that dialogue where the character already met certain people, for example, or someone died, right? Or we change the scene in these ways so we actually account for it, but in like a cheaper way, right? Um, So I did a lot of this and it is kind of... You know this meme, this very popular meme with this guy who stands in front of like this board with um, with strings connecting different pictures and all that, right? And he's trying to explain it. That's how it feels a lot of times yeah. because there are so many dependencies and things. It's like a lot of moving things that, you know, like influence one another. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It's, it's crazy to try to, to get people to understand just how much... Like, for instance, you know, like one of the big complaints about Fallout 4 mm-hmm. was that they had kind of reduced the dialogue to, you know, like like two or three choices. Yeah. And the thing is, is as a game player, yeah, that sucks. I, you know, I loved, you know, New Vegas. I loved 3. It was so great. Mm-hmm. But then, you know, as someone who kind of gets, understands how these stories are told and designed and built mm-hmm. on some level... It's uh, clearly they were trying to reduce the workload to make it a little bit smaller. For sure. For sure. So that they didn't have to go absolutely wild. Yeah, like one of the things, <laughs> it's funny because one of the things that working in game development does is obviously it inadvertently changes the way you experience video games as a player. I never, I, I cannot look the same way about at video games anymore. Like I, when, when I play the game and I see certain problems, I'm like, oh, I know exactly why they have this problem. And I feel for them because we had this and we struggled to fix this, you know? At the same time, like, um, I think you can still look at the game and say, I, I kind of get why they did it like this. And actually, this is the, 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 the part which is like kind of like a struggle because on one hand, you're like, yeah, I see why they did it like this. But at the same time, but maybe they should have sacrificed something else actually in this case because it 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 actually did get the quality much you know uh lower right so i think you can still be critical even as you're understanding but for sure it helps you not give in to like very um cheap shortcuts where you just say oh they must have been lazy or they just didn't care about the game right because this is like very hurtful and like it it's just not truthful truthful like i don't know i don't know i i've met a number of game developers throughout the years not only in the companies i work for but like on like different gaming shows like like on on like some uh like game dev parties and stuff like this i never met a video game designer that wanted to create crappy things or didn't care about their work usually they're very passionate people and they want to do the best quality they can but very often they're just either you know facing this production reality we're talking about and they do not see way out of it and maybe there is a way out of it they just cannot see it because they are in it for so long they don't see a way out of it so they just go with it they're like well this is what we have to do there is no way out right We've been in these situations before, so often actually it's very helpful to get a pers- like an outside perspective, someone who tells you, actually, look, I understand all the problems, the realities of production, but maybe do this and that, and this will help. And actually, honestly, like sometimes you're just blind to these things because you've been stuck in that specific place for so long, right? And uh, on the other hand, I think sometimes it's also the case of just a lot of different factors that impact this specific outcome, right? Sometimes uh, it's sometimes projects go through like turbulences, you know, like maybe they change teams sometimes uh, a few times. 
you know, you, you probably read these articles about like what happened in Bioware around um, uh, Andromeda and uh, what was it? Oh, I'm forgetting the word, the the title of it. Anthem, right? You know, it, it sounded like a like there were a lot of things going on in the production and throughout the development of these games that impacted the final outcomes, right? And often, yeah, I, I don't believe that, you know, people on these teams didn't care. I, I believe they cared very deeply about the projects they made. But sometimes it's just not up to you. Yeah. And, um, you know, and that's that's actually like coming back to one of your earlier questions. This is one of the big things like regarding making video games. They're very complex organisms, very, very complex. And uh, sometimes, like you said, are made by hundreds of people, right? Or even more. Um, and then, yeah, like if you have like a complex systemic failure, this is what happens, right? Well, and and it can't even like when you get into like a company that that's that's that big, it grows to beyond to like the problems that can happen will grow beyond just you know writing or you know creating the world or whatever. Yeah. It will grow to you know there might be corporate problems way over your head. Yes, or maybe. Two project managers hate each other's guts, and it has nothing to do with the game whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, absolutely. Like, like, like. You know, um, I, I often said to to the uh, leads I was working with back in CDPR that um, the com- like when they asked me what's the biggest challenge in working on video games, I, I always say communication. Just because these teams are so big, and the bigger they get, the more complex, difficult it gets. It's impossible to have teams with no conflicts whatsoever, you know. And yeah, like you said, sometimes when it festers, it can be really impactful and problematic, you know. And often, like in these huge teams, you'll have not even like sometimes it's not even conflict between two people. Like these are very extreme situations. It doesn't happen that often, actually. But more often, you'll get a lot of small miscommunications. Yeah, that's the word I was looking for. And as, as these accumulate through production, these miscommunications or lack of communication in certain areas, the problems will pile on to the point where the problems are really big and difficult to face and fix. This is why it's extremely important to continue working in communication at all times, you know, in big organizations. It's actually interesting because um, when you work on a book, for example, there is still a level of complexity, as you noticed, as you said, um, but you have the comfort of being the person that, you know, is responsible for most things happening in it, I, I assume. And yeah, like in video games, it's not it's not that way at all. Like, um, it was funny, actually, because uh, there was this ongoing anecdote where we had three teams that were bo- all working on narrative to some degree. Um, so quest designers, writers, and cinematic designers. And whenever we spoke to people, people from all these teams felt like the other teams are the ones that have more to say and they would like to have more to say. You know, like quest designers would sometimes say that about writers, writers would say that about quest designers or cinematic designers, and cinematic designers would say the same, obviously. Um, So it's interesting because all three groups felt like the other groups actually are the ones that are forcing things in, right? While in reality, it's just... It's this um, back and forth, uh, I say. Like, and you know, a, a lot of very good quality things we made uh, was coming from that place. So we would have, like, some of these things would be a result of back and forth. It was not like a singular vision of one person. It would be rather worked, you know, worked out between multiple people, and this was the end result. 
and I think this is more often than not the case uh, in this process. Oh, that's that's super fascinating. I, I love hearing about the way that creative professionals work on projects that are so big and unwieldy. It's 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 really interesting, and it's yeah, like it's like because it's kind of what I do for a living, but in like a much more like in a much more complex way yeah. because like you said there's so many more moving parts it's such a big living organism to try to complete right yeah and 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 there are a lot of factors that impact communication like very simple things sometimes like language you know we i i think i i told you before in this uh in our conversation like uh we all spoke english like that was the communication language in the company but you know, like because I'm not a native in English, I sometimes might have misunderstood someone who was. Or you would have, you know, you would have non-natives speaking in English from many different cultures and countries, and their level of English was also different. You know, and maybe some idioms were not obvious to them; they were not picking up on some subtleties, right? And that already can cause a big miscommunication. I'm actually reading recently a book about. Uh, I don't remember the exact title right now, but it's a book about communication uh, in a bit, a between cultures and an organization and managing teams when you have teammates from other cultures. Um, which is it's fascinating read really because there are certain traits uh, that dominate certain nationalities, they're, they're cultures really, and they impact in a, a heavily like the way they communicate. So. For example, there was this example of like, um, for example, in Chinese culture, it's very popular. Uh, it's very like, of course, you will get uh, people who will be an exception, right? But on average, they usually are communicating less directly. So they will say less because there is a meaning that is um, assumed everyone will understand in between the lines, right? While uh, Americans, for example, this is what the book says, are more direct with the way they communicate. Like you, you they will um, explain more in detail. Like good communication in the US is about, according to the book, uh, going as, in as many details as you can to explain it fully, right? So in China, for example, this is not the way they communicate at all uh, when they talk about things. So when you put people from these two different cultures in one team and they have to work together, you will get miscommunications because this is what it is most of the time which can create conflicts because you know the the uh, one person might imagine the other person doesn't want to tell them something and it's not the case at all this person thought they said everything they need to say right because this is the way they communicated all their life and now suddenly something else is expected of them but nobody says it explicitly right so yeah this is very interesting and the way the thing they recommend uh, which i wholeheartedly agree with this is what worked best for me in the past is to actually apply the model of over communicating because this is the easiest one to apply to like a multicultural team whereas if you try to go with the approach of like these subtleties actually this will not work because uh, even cultures that are kind of similar in way of communicating so uh let's say uh, i think they were saying the chinese and uh i think maybe maybe Spanish people, I'm, I'm not sure on that. But there are cultures that use this way of communicating. They have a different set of like meanings in their functioning in their culture. And this is what allows them actually to communicate with less words, right? When you have an, a group which is more multicultural, 
you don't have these common meanings because, you know, um, they're coming from different cultures, which is why also the book explains U.S. is like this, because it, it had to evolve to be this, because it has, you know, it had so many people from different cultures in it. I, I was talking to a friend of mine recently um, who works in the, um, the energy sector, and he was talking about how um, part of his company is owned by a kind of a Japanese corporation. And he said that sometimes it's really difficult to really good across communication because in the culture, uh, you're not supposed to, to disagree with your boss. Yeah, yeah, exactly. No, no matter how wrong they are. And, and so, like, so something like that becomes a struggle for you know, just trying to, trying to get something done, even if you both want the same result. Absolutely. And, you know, it's, and that's the thing. There is no real conflict there. Like there is no maybe sometimes even disagreement on values or disagreement on what do you want to achieve, right? Mm -hmm. It's mostly these built up miscommunications and misunderstandings uh, between people because they do not understand where this other person is coming from, right? And it can cause a conflict, but basically these are um, these are like these are solvable, you know. Like you, you, it's it's not like I want A, A you want B. It's just we do not we cannot agree on what A is. Right, like because yeah, we cannot find common language. Even if we speak the same language, that's the funniest part about it. Yeah, very much. Well, um, so I have kept you for quite a long time, but I, I like to end every one of these episodes with uh, a kind of a left field question, sure. which is, what's the last food that you ate that blew your mind? Ah, uh, that's a difficult one. Well, there is this really nice restaurant in LA. Uh, we like to go there from time to time. Uh, it's called Osteria Moza. Uh, it has one Michelin star. Uh, and uh, I think, um, and I usually don't go to fancy restaurants like this, so I wasn't sure what to expect. But in general, they have really solid, uh, very good Italian food. Ooh. And I think the one that blew my mind the most was the way they prepared the octopus. Oh, yeah? Because, yeah, it was like one of the appetizers, actually. Um, but I don't know what they did to it, but it was like cooked really nicely. Like most of the octopuses I ate before, like they were like, like you know, like not like nice texture, like maybe chewy and so on. This one like was like really nice texture and like it was seasoned really, really nicely. And somehow they made, uh, because there was like celery, I think, around it. Um, somehow, and I really don't like celery, but they make, made it actually in a way that actually made, was really enjoyable, uh, which was really surprising to me because I, I usually don't eat that and I would actively avoid it. But in this case, I would eat all of it. I would clean the plate. So I guess that. Oh, uh, that, that's fantastic. I, I, I normally do not like seafood, but one of my weird little quirks is that I actually really quite like octopus. Mm. And I'll, if I see it on the menu, I'll get it. Yeah, actually, it's apparently really bad because they're very intelligent and nice animals. Um, but it was delicious, I'm sorry to say. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, that, that, that could be tough when, when something is very good, but maybe not yeah. uh, ethically <laughs> yeah, it, it is ethically, ethically, it's questionable, I would say, at, at least. Yeah. That was narrative designer Mateusz Tomoskiewicz. Thanks again to Matt for coming on to chat. You can find links to Matt's social media down in the show notes. You can find me, as always, at brianmcclellan.com. Special thanks to James Sutter for music and Tom Bishop for production. 
If you'd like to support the podcast, head on over to patreon.com slash pagebreak or buy my books in ebook, paperback, or audio. You can also get signed copies of my books direct from my website or swag from my Redbubble store. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and leave a review. If you're listening to this via Patreon, please stick around for bonus chat during the epilogue. Special thanks to Elijah, Ivor Gullickson, James Clark, Jennifer Johnson, Jay Sunnell, and Kyle Anderson for their backing on Patreon. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.